Wonderful song to set up Leviticus chapter 2. And I'm a child of God. I'm chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say that I am. Pray with me and then we'll dive into Leviticus chapter 2. Father God, we thank you um, for this Old Testament passage. These, these offerings and what they meant back then and what they point to for us today. Lord, I pray that uh, these glorious truths, would we would be able to mine them from this passage, that we would be able to understand who we are in relation to this, that we would truly believe that there are solutions to our shame, that we wouldn't believe that we're just unclean, sinful, broken people, but that we would understand that you have provided a pathway out of that shame. You've provided solutions to our uncleanliness. But we ask that your spirit now would come and fill this room, that he would do the work that only he can do, the work of giving us eyes to see, the work of convicting us where we need conviction, maybe these areas of our thought life, areas of our heart that we've kind of blocked off from you, that we've given over everything else except for these little areas. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith where we lack, that we would trust you on things that you're calling us to. Maybe it's something to give over to you or to give up or to go a new bold way. We just ask for your grace today. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Many have said that uh, the, the higher you go with God is in direct correlation to how low you've gone without him. John Newton, uh, his life certainly marked that. He had some amazing highs, if, if you know his story. He was a pastor who uh, wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace. He's somebody who really experienced God's grace in very, very profound ways. He knew God's grace. He found hope and joy and freedom in that grace. It's certainly true that the higher you go with God is in direct connection to how low you go without him, at least in the case of John Newton. Because if you know John Newton's story, he had some amazing lows. Before he became a Christian, before he became a pastor, John Newton was a slave trader. What an amazing past for someone who became a pastor. I don't know if you've ever been to the National Museum of African American History, but it's one of the great museums in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that's so great about it is its architecture. The way you go through the museum, you don't just kind of float all around, kind of creating your own pathway through it. What they do is they uh, put you in an, an elevator. And a better way to say it, they cram you into an elevator. And I kind of like my personal space. And I remember being in that elevator, and it's like we're all very close together. They cram you into this elevator, and then they send you down to the first floor. They send you down to the bottom. And when you get down to the bottom, it's very narrow hallways. It's very dark. The ceilings are kind of low. And what the whole museum is designed to demonstrate is just the, the journey or the experience of African Americans in our country. And so it starts with coming over on the slave uh, ships and it, all the exhibits are about that. And then the, uh, the exhibits kind of wind their way up and then there's this expanse and openness as if you know they, for African Americans today, the, the sky's the limit of what they can be and do and accomplish. It's a really uh, beautiful uh, demonstration of what architecture can be. But down there at the bottom, when 
that's tight and dark. And even the exhibits, you kind of have to, you know, work your way around people to kind of see the different things. It's meant to just give you a taste, just a very small taste of that experience of being crammed onto those slave ships, that, that, that suffocating, horrific abuse that they went through, went through. John Newton was one of those men who sinned against people in that way. I think one of the most horrific uh, evils that have ever happened in the history of the world, John Newton participated in that. He wickedly forced those poor men and women into those cramped quarters. He whipped them. He, he forced them to lie down and shackled their hands and their feet and even their necks. He starved them. He mocked them. Uh, when he heard those helpless, broken, dying cries, he callously did nothing. John Newton was a man who found and experienced God's amazing grace. However, no doubt he spent his life haunted by those cries. Can you imagine committing those types of sins and how that, that would just haunt you the rest of your life? Those cries never left him. Our question today is, how do we find lasting hope and healing from shame? How do we find lasting hope and healing from shame? If you remember from last week, we referenced that Ed Welch definition of what shame is. Ed Welch is a Christian counselor, and he says that shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable. You're unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or something that you're associated with. You feel exposed and humiliated. You see, shame is this feeling we feel when we believe that we're unacceptable. Now, no doubt there were days when Newton felt unacceptable over his actions, or maybe even worse, his inactions. I'm sure he battled that his entire life. Yet he found hope, he found healing from that shame, that, that, and it was hope and healing that lasted. Now, his experience is very similar to the Old Testament saints who offered up that, those burnt offering, offerings as described in, in Leviticus 1. Last week, we saw that those burnt offerings, they, they were all about offering up these offerings to God and God accepting them based upon his atonement. That was the key idea from last week. Leviticus 1 and the burnt offerings is, is that God accepts you through atonement. So if you want healing from shame, it starts with this base or foundational theological truth that God accepts you based upon his atonement. Now we're going to build on that and go maybe that next step up here in Leviticus 2 with the grain offering. Now before we get to the grain offering, if you weren't here last week, let me just give some context to the book of Leviticus. First off, the, the theme of the book of Leviticus is this command that we see throughout the book to be holy as I am holy. This is what Leviticus is dealing with. It's this call to be holy as God is holy. God is holy, we are not. And if we're to have a relationship with him, we need to deal with our unholiness. And so that's the second point that the problem that the book of Leviticus deals with is this problem of unholiness or uncleanliness. And so what the book of Leviticus does is it builds out this entire religious system with priests and sacrifice and temples and tabernacles, all these different things to deal with this problem of our uncleanliness. It enables us to be clean so that we can then relate to the holy God. But third, the, the idea of clean and uncleanliness, it's connected to feelings of shame. And that's, as you see on, your, on the screen, that's the title of this series of messages is the solution to shame. You see, this idea of uncleanliness and cleanliness, it's directly connected to feelings of shame. 
So no matter what someone struggles with with regarding shame, the root of that is some issue of uncleanliness, feeling unacceptable, being rejected in some way. That's the root of all of our struggles with shame. And so these ideas of uncleanliness are helpful and and having a solution to the problem of uncleanliness becomes the solution to our problem to shame. The final point I want to make before we look at our text is that we're, we're looking in this series at the five offerings, the burnt offering. Today we're looking at the grain offering. Next week we'll look at the peace offering. And the final week of this series we'll look at the sin and the guilt offering. And again, the main idea of all of these that was demonstrated in Leviticus 1 with that burnt offering is that we're accepted through atonement. Look with me at the, verse, the first three verses, and then we're going to see that upon belief of acceptance through atonement, we're to dedicate ourselves to faithful obedience. Dedicate yourself to faithful obedience. Verse 1 says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. The grain offering is all about dedication. Another word for that is consecration. These uh, folks were dedicating themselves based upon the gratitude they had for the burnt offering. Many argue that these things would go right together. And so in response to the burnt offering is the grain offering. So they're dedicating themselves. Again, just by way of review from last week on Leviticus 1. In Leviticus 1, we saw the burnt offering. And if you weren't with us, it was this voluntary offering where they would bring an animal, their uh, most prized animal, one without blemish, something that was really worth something. And they would bring it to the Lord and they would slaughter that animal. Now, most of us are not farmers and ranchers. And so the idea of slaughtering an animal is pretty gruesome. And it was gruesome back then. It was a very bloody process that the individual participated in. The point that we were to take away from that is, is that sin always costs something. Relational sin, economic sin, Cosmic spiritual sin, like we're dealing with here, it always cost something, and it cost them something. But also in that uh, burnt offering, they laid their hands on the offering, and there was a sense that the animal was an unblemished animal. But the individual who was laying their hands on the animal, they were blemished, they were unclean, they were sinful. And so what was going on there symbolically, what was this transfer, this atonement that was happening, that animal became the substitute uh, for the individual. So what's happening there is that animal was atoning for the individual sins. And there's all sorts of uh, implications and pointing to, uh, to the cross in that. But that's an early example of acceptance through atonement. Now the question is, what should have been their response to acceptance through atonement? Here you are at that moment. You have all these sins. They're now transferred onto that animal. Your slate is wiped clean. You're literally moved from the category of unclean to clean Well, what should their response have been? Well, certainly gratitude, certainly worship, right? Like when God grants us atonement, makes us clean, even though we don't deserve it, when he becomes the atonement for us, we respond to that with worship and with gratitude. Now, let's take that one step forward. That means that we, uh, what, what they were to do is that they were to dedicate themselves. 
that they truly believed this, if they were truly filled with gratitude, if they were truly worshiping him, they were then to dedicate themselves to faithfully follow them. That's where the grain offering comes in. The grain offering follows the burnt offering as an offering of dedication. It's as if they were saying, praise God, you've accepted us. You've moved us from this category based upon your atonement, based upon the blood of the animal. You've moved us from unclean to clean. And as a response to that, we're not going to make this second offering dedicating ourselves to you. It's an act of worship. It's an act of gratitude. But it demonstrates our genuine worship. It demonstrates our genuine gratitude. It demonstrates our genuine faith by saying we are dedicating ourselves to faithful obedience. That's what the grain offering is. There's an interesting word used here for offering here. It's used in Genesis with, uh, with Cain and Abel's offering. It's also used uh, th- uh, throughout the Old Testament as a, as a tribute. So if you had like a vassal king and an overlord, that, that, that underling, he, he would pay the more powerful king a tribute. It, it's the same uh, word here used uh, for, the, for the grain offering. And what it's supposed to demonstrate is, is they're acknowledging you're the one that's more powerful. You're the one in control. I'm going to go your way. I'm going to consecrate myself or dedicate myself, if you will, to faithfully obeying you. Now, it's interesting, I think, here on the relationship between the burnt offering and the grain offering. Both of them were voluntary. They weren't mandatory. The the last two offerings we're going to look at were mandatory offerings. And and I think it's uh, understood that uh, the the grain offering typically followed, and maybe in some cases, just immediately following uh, the burnt offering. So there's a link in some way uh, to both of these. And I think the link is, is that the grain offering is in response to the burnt offering, okay? But but there is a, there are distinctions between the two offerings. Of course, one's grain, flour, bread. The other one is is animals. It's bulls and and birds and all these different things. Uh, There's another distinction in that the burnt offering, it was completely burned up, right? There was nothing left. But, but the grain offering, one of the distinctions is, is there was stuff left. There was bread left. There was grain left. Now, what were they supposed to do with the leftovers there? If you looked at that first passage, they were to then give that to the sons of Aaron. They were to give that to the priest. So not only was it an offering to the Lord, but it, but it was a gift to the priest. Now, what the significance of uh, the grain offering was, this was the main way they supported uh, the Levitical priests. This was the main way that they supported their religious leaders. Again, the individual was dedicating themselves to faithfully obeying God. And their first act of faithfully obeying God was supporting the Lord's work through supporting the physical needs of the priest. So there's links between genuine spirituality that, that believes in and accepts that, okay, I'm accepted by God based upon my atonement, I believe that to the degree that I'm dedicating myself to faithfully follow you. And then the first act of faithfully following them, they give a gift to the Lord, these religious leaders, to help support uh, the the physical needs of their leaders. You see this pattern in the New Testament. Let, Let me read 1 Corinthians 9, 8 to 14. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our, for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Of we, have, of we have sown spiritual things among you. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
If anyone share this uh, rightful claim on you, do not even do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, we need to be careful here, okay? Every time I've brought to the elders that I want a Redeemer Church plane, they shoot it down, okay? Like, this passage is not pastors today need to get rich off the church, okay? I think we need to be very careful on that. I haven't asked for the helicopter, but maybe they'll approve that. But I do want to be very, very clear, this passage is not about pastors getting rich. And in fact, television preachers who are doing that, I, I think they're sinfully doing so. And I also want to say that, listen, I, I don't reference this passage as some sort of like rebuke on our church. Our, our church takes care of us, takes care of our staff. Uh, we, we feel like this church is very generous. But, but I do reference this because just in order to be faithful to the passage, okay? What you see in the Old Testament is this pattern of God's people caring for the religious leaders as part of what God is doing in the world, okay? And also, I think that there is a real link in their discipleship between accepting uh, atonement, that, that God has atoned for our sins and has accepted us, and then we respond to that by dedicating ourselves to faithfully obeying him, and then that first thing that, that they do out of faithful obedience is they support the Lord's work by caring for the physical needs of the priest, what I'm getting at here is uh, when, when people do not give to the Lord, when they don't tie to the local church or give faithfully to the Lord, friends, that's a discipleship issue. Every time we sit down and talk with people on, on those things, and we, we don't a lot, but those are always discipleship issues. People can justify that and do all sorts of things, but if you're not giving faithfully to the Lord, friend, it's a discipleship issue. It's a direct connection to, listen, are you, uh, are you faithfully obeying? Are you with gratitude responding to the acceptance through atonement that he's given you. Okay, that's a general application of the grain offering, is that God has accepted you through his atonement, and then he calls us uh, to then dedicate ourselves to faithfully follow him. But more specifically, what does that mean? Well, let me give you three things on what I think that that means. The first one is, from verses 4 to 10, to dedicate yourself to the word. Let me, let me read 4 to 10. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering... It shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn it. This is uh, burn this on the altar, a food offering that is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. So what's going on here in the grain offering is some of the offerings are cooked grain and some of the offerings are uncooked grain. Now there's not consensus as to why. Why was some of it cooked? Why was some of it uncooked? I think that probably the, the safest way to understand this is that both the cooked grain and the uncooked grain served as a benefit and a blessing to the priest. So you can imagine that you know, the, the priest, as he participates in this, what is left over are literally loaves of bread, and he's able to take that home and, and, and take that to his family and, and provide food for his family. 
However, of course, bread eventually molds and, and wears out. And so the grain provides for the family support more long-term. And so I think what's going on here is that this is their way of taking care of the priestly class in the immediate, but also in the long-term. Well, no, no matter the why, no matter why sometimes it's cooked, sometimes it's uncooked, that, that in many ways doesn't really matter. What matters is, is there's a connection between dedicating themselves to the Lord dedicating themselves to faithful obedience and just living their lives faithfully according to the word. So if the word says, cook the grain, then you cook the grain. If the word says, don't cook the grain, then you don't cook the grain. If the word says, go this way, then you go this way. Faithful obedience to the Lord is faithful obedience to his word. If the portion is cooked or uncooked, it doesn't, it, it, what matters is, are, are you faithful to what the, the word is calling you to do? Faithfully obeying God's word means that you don't just generalize what you think the word is. I talk to people all the time that say something akin to, yeah, all rel- it's all about love. You know, it's just, and all religions are about, they're really all the same. Well, that raises all sorts of questions, right? I mean, aren't there mature, you know, thoughtful questions in response to that? What is love? How do you love somebody? I mean, all these things pop up. And so if someone it just has this kind of general understanding of things. It's a mark of a lack of seriousness or a lack of maturity in the relationship with God. It, it, it highlights maybe a lack of dedication to faithfully following the Lord. Rather, we're supposed to get into the particulars of the word and then live accordingly. So generally, upon belief of acceptance or atonement, dedicate yourself to faithful obedience, but more specifically, dedicate yourself to the word. The second thing I think we're to dedicate ourselves to is his covenant promises. His covenant promises. Look at 11 and 13. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your Lord be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Okay, we've got leaven, honey, and salt. There's debate in the Old Testament, okay, what's the meaning of leaven and honey here? What does that symbolize? Now, if you know different places in the Old Testament, and even some of the new, uh, leaven becomes a symbol of sin, right? So if you put leaven in it, it symbolically like makes it unclean. Now, there's debate on why honey is in there. Maybe the sweetness is somehow connected to an understanding of uncleanliness. But the point is, is leaven and honey are there together and they're supposed to be excluded from the offering. But the thing that is supposed to be included in the offering is salt. Now, there's uh, all sorts of different symbolisms that we see of salt, including in the New Testament, right? Sometimes it's meant to be a, a preservative, right? Something that, that helps uh, give something permanence, okay? But here it's, there's a connection between salt and God's covenants. Now, books and books and books can have been and can be written on the covenants. But maybe a, uh, a base understanding of covenant is that he's, this is a reference to God prom- God's promises. God makes all these promises to us. But there's a link between God's promises, his covenant promises, and salt. Well, I think the link is, is that God's covenant promises, uh, they preserve us and they're permanent. They don't wear out like that, like that bread. They don't, they don't wear out. They're, it's like salt. It just never wears out. There's a permanence to it, and it preserves us as a result of it. And so what he's calling us to is to dedicate ourselves to God's covenant promises. If you want solution to shame, 
then you live your life according to God's covenant promises. Well, there's one more. Dedicate yourself to the Lord. Look at 14 to 16. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. So again, to summarize all of this, Leviticus 2 is a grateful, worshipful response to the fact that God had accepted them through his atonement. And what they're doing is they're dedicating themselves to faithfully follow him. And it begins with this grain offering. It's their way of saying, God, I'm committed to faithfully follow you. I'm gonna faithfully follow what your word calls me to do. I'm gonna believe and claim and live my life according to the covenant promises you make. And, and I'm gonna live for you, Lord. I, I'm, I'm gonna live for the Lord. And, and notice here in this final section, he talks about them giving their best to the Lord. Their best is, is the first fruits, it's the frankincense. They were to give their best to the Lord. And, and it, it uses this phrase, to the Lord, twice, including uh, closing this final section with this. And again, this uh, experience of, ex- of experiencing atonement uh, via and then God accepting us. This is a very personal reality to, to all of this. They, they relate this directly to their relationship to the Lord. When they're accepted and they want to live this way, when they dedicate this, they're not dedicating themselves to ideas. They're dedicating themselves to a person. They're dedicating themselves to the Lord. In other words, if you want to find hope and healing from shame, we need to respond to God's acceptance through atonement by dedicating ourselves to following him and following his ways. If you want lasting healing from your shame, you're to dedicate yourself to faithfully follow him. Freedom from shame is directly connected to a life that seeks to glorify God. If you want freedom from shame, then you're gonna live a life that seeks to glorify God. You're not gonna go back to those old ways of living. You're going to go to this new way, this new way where you've dedicated yourself to the Lord. All of us struggle with some level of shame. Shame, again, is this feeling we feel when we're unaccepted. We we feel shame when we believe we're a loser, that we're somehow less than, that we're not good enough. We feel shame when someone we want to accept us ends up rejecting us. Again, that Ed Welch definition that shame is the deep sense that you're unacceptable. This is the the root of shame is that you believe that you're unacceptable. Now, the solution to that shame is believing that God has accepted you. He's atoned for your uncleanliness, and then he has accepted you into his family. He's accepted you. He wants you, as that song we just sang, he doesn't want heaven without you. He's accepted you, and that's based upon his atonement. But, but the lasting uh, uh, belief there, the, the, the lasting solution is not to just have a one and done belief in that atonement, but it's to continue to believe that or to really believe that. You, you see, if atonement is cheapened and faith is inauthentic, if, if you just say, yeah, 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 I believe that, and then you just go live your life uh, accordingly and, and differently. Like if dedication to faithfully following the Lord does not follow acceptance by atonement, you're just going to slip back into that shame. You're just going to fall right back into that. 
You, you see, uh, this, this idea of, of truly being free from shame, it's connected to the fact if you really believe acceptance through atonement, really believe it to the degree that you dedicate uh, to live your life accordingly. This is why Leviticus 2 follows Leviticus 1. This is why the grain offering follows the burnt offering. To have hope for lasting healing from shame, it requires us to dedicate ourselves to faithfully following the Lord. We're to be living sacrifices in that way. It's living and active today. You remember Romans 12, 1 and 2? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, shame says you're rejected, but Jesus says you're accepted. And believing Jesus in that moment, believing that he accepts you, that's how you break free from the bondage of shame. But the key is really dedicating yourself to that, to really believing that. Again, many people are, they're kind of the yeah, yeah guy. Yeah, yeah, pastor. Yeah, I believe that. Sure, great, cool. Check that box. But then when that person that they idolize, that person they idolize when they reject them, man, they just fall right back into where they were, right? You see, the yeah, yeah guy, the guy with the, with the cheap, with the plastic, with the, with the shallow faith, he's not gonna find lasting healing from shame. Lasting healing from shame requires a living sacrifice, a, a continual, genuine belief. However, those who, they're the ones who renew their minds when they're tempted to believe shame. They dedicate themselves to faithfully following God's word, to, to trusting again those covenant promises, to living again for the Lord. That's how we find lasting healing from shame. Turn from the lies of shame and turn to the promises of Jesus' acceptance. Dedicate yourself to be a living sacrifice according to his word and according to his promises and for his glory. That's how you find lasting shame, uh, uh, lasting uh, healing from that shame. When shame hunts you down again, do you believe his word that you are to dedicate yourself? When, when shame hunts you down again, do you believe those covenant promises that you're accepted? Do, do you believe that in that moment? When, when shame hunts you down again, do you dedicate yourself to living for the Lord, not to that idol who keeps rejecting you? Again, dedicate yourself to be a living sacrifice, living according to the word, living according to his promises, living for his glory. Dedicate yourself. That's how you experience lasting healing from shame. Some of us have done some really shameful things, haven't we? Some of us have said awful things. Some of us have viewed wicked things on our phones. Some of us have betrayed those who've given us so much love. Some of us have done other things or evil things to other people or with other people. John Newton enslaved and sold people. <laughs> he shackled people. He beat them and abused them. He ignored their cries. When they needed mercy and justice, he gave them neither. No doubt all that shame haunted him the rest of his life. You just picture him walking down the street in London and then the other side of the street, he uh, sees someone with dark skin coming this way. Can you imagine that he had moments where that just paralyzed him, just, just took him back to the past? Can you imagine him sitting there over coffee and people are debating the abolitionist movement? 
just the sting of that, the memories, the cries that came back to his mind. John Newton said that a, a single view of Christ will do you more good than pouring over your own wounds for a month. What a great quote. He understood that if he lingered on all that, he was going to be in bondage to all that shame. But, but he had found something. He had found a solution to that shame, and it was to look to Christ, to believe in him. When shame tried to reject him, he turned to Jesus for acceptance. Friends, it wasn't just something he did once. That's something I want you to hear more than anything today. It's something he did over and over and over and over again. He turned his eyes off himself and he put them onto Christ. However, this wasn't a plastic, shallow, inauthentic, short-lived faith. He fought to dedicate himself daily. You see, he, if you know the story of John Newton, he joined that abolitionist movement. There is a pastor in London. He, he sought to influence all those members of parliament to try to get them to vote to end slavery in the British Empire. In fact, he wrote a little booklet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade where he was trying to specifically influence those members of parliament as well as the, the public. In that booklet, he wrote, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. What, what a radical change. What a radical evil that he was part of because he didn't give in to the lies of shame. He, he was able uh, to, then, uh, to, to then be freed from that shame and he did it through looking to Christ. He did it once and for all through looking to Christ of receiving that atonement that he offers. But he continued to do it. He dedicated himself to living according to God's word, according to God's covenant, gospel promises, and according to the Lord. And through that, he was able to heal from that shame. And in fact, he was even able to take the evils of that shame, be redeemed from it, and then let God take all of that and do something good in his life as a result of it. If you want to find a solution to your shame, it begins by believing that God accepts you based upon Jesus' atonement on the cross. That's where it begins. And then you begin a journey building on that day in, day out, daily dedicating yourself to faithful obedience. When shame hunts you, dedicate yourself to the word. When shame tries to pull you back into bondage, dedicate yourself to the good news of all those glorious salted covenant promises of God. When shameful memories haunt you, dedicate yourself to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you're here today, that, that, you are, that, that God calls you to accept what Jesus has done for you. He accepts you based upon his atonement. He wants you to hear that there is real solution to your shame. Where the world or all these other things reject you, he accepts you, and it's through his atonement. But he calls you then to dedicate yourself, to believe all that atonement stuff to the degree that you dedicate yourself to faithfully following him. And it's there, it's right there that you're gonna find lasting solution to your shame. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for this Old Testament passage that is so foreign to our modern years in so many ways. We don't do grain offerings and burn offerings. It's just not part of what we do anymore. But we do recognize just really beautiful theological truths in all of this. Lord, may we be a people that, that truly believes that you accept us based upon your atonement. May we be a people, Lord, 
that believes that to the degree that we would faithfully obey you, that we would live according to your word, that we would live according to those permanent, salted, covenant promises that would never end, that we would live our lives for you, for your glory in relationship with you. And in that, Lord, bless us with freedom from that shame that haunts us.